Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in August. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Daniel James Brown's bestseller, The Boys in the Boat, is a story about beating the odds and finding hope in the most desperate of times. The improbable intimate account of how uh, nine working-class boys from the American West showed the world of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin what true grit really meant. The Boys in the Boat was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for incoming students and the community. Daniel James Brown is author previously of The Indifferent Stars Above and Under a Flaming Sky. And uh, The Boys in the Boat was the New York Times' uh, number one uh, bestseller. Um, he's taught writing at San Jose uh, University and uh, Stanford University and lives outside Seattle. Dan Jones Brown, uh, th- welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for uh, joining us. You've written in a uh, more extensive biography that uh, when you're not writing, you're likely to be birding, gardening, fly fishing, reading American history, or chasing bears away from the beehives. Sounds like quite the life. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a good life. I'm afraid I have no more beehives. The uh, the bears got the last of them last um last spring so the, the, the bears got him okay yeah <laughs> uh and uh, very interesting previous books in different stars above that's the the donner party i believe yes uh it was as i focused on uh, one particular young woman in the donner party a woman who was only 21 years old and was actually the, the trip out west was basically her honeymoon and um she was one of um several young people that tried to hike out of the sierra nevada to um to get word of what was happening up up in the mountains and actually she survived that and and was the first person to get out and and tell the outside world what was happening mm. and uh, under flaming sky an extraordinary uh, account true story account of a, a two forest fires that converged on a minnesota was it town yeah a little town in minnesota called hinkley um it actually revolves around um my great grandfather and my a grandfather. Um, my great grandfather was a mill hand working in Hinkley um, when these two fires converged on the town, and um, and he actually died trying to fight the fire. But um, they tried to evacuate the town. There were a couple of trains in town that morning, and so they loaded uh, as many people as they could onto these uh, trains and tried to back them out of town. And um, the town, uh, the train rather that my great grandmother and her son, my grandfather, were on, uh, actually caught fire on the way out of town. And about they got about five miles or so outside of town, and the the, the train was entirely on fire at that point. And so they all piled off the train and actually submerged themselves in a swamp and survived the fire that way. But it's a story about was really a, an absolutely horrific event, but there were a lot of uh, very heroic um, actions that, that that people took that day, and um, and so it was kind of a, a story I had grown up with and, and known all my life and never seen written up, so that was actually my first book. Yeah, just uh, and very timely, unfortunately, that, you know, wildfires uh, yeah. raging California, for example. Yeah. Yes, indeed. In fact, the air here in Seattle this morning is grimy and gray from from the fires um and it, it seems to be happening every summer now so and i was just reading this morning there's a, a firefighter with ties to logan here who uh, who died in the, one of the fires out in california oh. recently yeah uh, I, I saw that the firefighter had died i didn't know he was tied to logan yeah, utah yeah uh, so I want to get into Boys in the Boat, obviously. Uh, this th- this is um, uh, it's a very inspiring story, a lot of lessons here. Uh, there's an obvious <laughs> obvious reasons why it was selected for incoming students and lessons they can learn, and the community as well. Um, it's uh, the inspiration for a documentary film, The Boys of 36, which aired on uh, PBS. Before we get into the story, I wonder, uh, uh, did you envision that this would, uh, would hit so big and resonate uh, so widely? <laughs> You know, I think you never know with with a book. Of course, when any time you publish a book and put it out there, you you can never be sure what's going to happen in terms of reader response. But um, we actually uh, had pretty good feeling about this book. Um, actually, I had a good feeling about it from the time that I met Joe Rance and started to to research this story. Um, but when I had developed the book proposal and and um, we put it out to the publishers in New York. There was overwhelming interest um, instantaneously. So we knew that publishers liked 
the story a lot, like the book. Um, and then um, when the book was actually published, it, it got kind of a slow start, actually. We didn't have a New York Times review or any really major uh, national PR. So it, it became sort of a word-of-mouth book. And um, in some ways, it's the best kind of book because it, it climbed onto the New York Times bestseller list, mostly by people talking to other people about it. And um, and because it was a word of mouth book, it, it then stayed on the list for for over two years. Mm. So um, so I would say that um, I was very optimistic about the book right from right from the beginning. But but as I say, you, you can never be sure. Mm. Uh, tell me the story about how you came to meet uh, Joe Rance. If people haven't read the book, Joe Rance, uh, I guess the, the central figure, one of the yeah. key uh, boys in the boat there. Uh, this this uh, team that uh, of of uh, rough <laughs> Westerners who beat elite teams in the East and went on to win gold at the 1936 Olympics. How did you come to meet Joe? It was actually pretty much just happenstance. Um, we, were, <laughs> we were having a homeowners association meeting at my house here, and um, after the meeting, this this woman I knew only as Judy uh, at the time came up to me, and she said um, she had heard that I was a writer. And um, she was actually reading uh, Under a Flaming Sky to her father. And her father was living at her house under hospice care. He was in the last couple of months of his life. But he was enjoying that book, and so he wanted to meet me. So Judy asked if I'd come down and meet her father, and I, I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So I think it was the next day I went down, and I, and I met this elderly gentleman, Joe. Um, and he began to talk about... Well, first about his experiences growing up during the Great Depression, and that in itself really affected me. But then he just started to talk about this experience of starting to uh, of going to the University of Washington as a freshman and getting involved with rowing, and uh, how he and uh, his crewmates over the course of three years came together and started, to everybody's surprise, beating the best crews in the world, and went on ultimately to row for a gold medal against a German boat uh, at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And yeah, <laughs> as Joe was telling me this story, I just was, you know, my mouth dropped open. It was so interesting, and and the way he was telling it was so compelling that um, I just right there that very day, usually I'm very picky about book topics, but I just flat out, I said, Joe, can I write a book about your life? <laughs> and he said, no, uh, I don't want you to write a book about me or my life. Um, but he said, you could write a book about the boat. And I didn't know what he meant at first. And I realized what he meant was it had to be about all of them, the whole crew, what all of them had done together. And so I said, that's what I would try to do. And uh, I set out on what turned out to be about a four-year uh, research and writing project that eventually... Uh, Eventually turned into the boys in the boat. You, uh, I guess, you interviewed him a lot before his death. Yeah. So, um, so Joe lived. Um, Joe lived only about two and a half months after I first met him, and I spent a lot of time with him during that period. Um, but then, even after he passed away, his daughter Judy, who had introduced us, she had spent the previous I don't know five or six years sitting with her father with a notepad taking notes, collecting stories, collecting news clippings, collecting photographs. So even after Joe passed away, um, Judy had all these notes and boxes of material with which to work. So that really became sort of the nucleus of the book. And then Judy, um, these families all became very close back in the 30s and have remained close. So Judy introduced me to the family members of all the other eight guys in the boat. And um, and so we started interviewing them, and um, and that was enormously helpful. All the families um, very much wanted this story told, and and so all of them began to come to me with letters and diaries and photographs and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it became a huge collective effort, and um, and and their participation was was absolutely essential. 
So it's, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. It's, uh, you know, it's good versus evil. It's, uh, there's a love story there. There's a lot of elements here. But I wonder, uh, what did you, you came to, you first were confused. What did uh, Joe Rance mean about the boat? It wasn't the, so much the physical boat, although that's included. But I guess it's, it's the camaraderie, the, the trust, the bond. There's an incredible bond, it seems like, that was formed here with this crew. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as Joe was talking to me that first day and in subsequent days, whenever he'd start talking about the other guys he'd rode with, he would tear up. And um, and you could see how much um, how much affection he had for these other fellows, and how close they had become, and what you know, and what that had meant to them back in the middle of the depression to, to have this experience, and. And so that really, I mean, that's also sort of the essence of crew as a sport is um, you have to, everybody in the boat basically has to become part of one single larger thing. And and so you you grow close, I think, on any sort of team. You, if it's a successful team, you grow close to the other members. But in rowing, it's just the most fundamental thing of all about the sport. You absolutely have to be watching out for each other at every single moment. And so um, that was very moving as I interviewed the last couple of these fellows who were still alive to see how how deeply attached they were to each other. And this is after 70 years. Um, for the rest of their lives after 1936, they were close. They got together uh, every, you know, several times every year, family picnics, uh, swim parties. They would have every year they would have a annual reunion row when they could get out in Lake Washington and get the old boat out and and row together until gosh I don't remember the last year they rowed but they were um they were practically in wheelchairs at that point they had to be helped in and out of the boat so <laughs> so it was a lifetime a lifetime commitment to one another <laughs> uh and I'll have you tell us the extraordinary story um of of the uh, 1936 Olympics and and the the run up to that uh, they not only had to defeat uh, the German team at the Olympics, but they had to overcome the elite Eastern teams. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to have you tell me a bit of the story of Joe Rance. It's, it's an extraordinary story, um, yeah. including being abandoned by his family. And that, that created Indeed. issues. Uh, and you have said, you've written that uh, you feel like uh, finding rowing saved Joe's life. Uh, we'll talk about that and other other things when we come back. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Why, even if you are an award-winning food writer and experienced chef, you probably should not open a restaurant. A restaurant is a harsh mistress. Also, is Scandinavia really the happiest place on earth? I'd have said a six was a good day in London, and now I'm generally on that eight, and sometimes it's a nine if I'm lucky. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tomorrow morning at 10 on UPR. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie and restaurant reviews. Available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music from ragtime to bop. From Havana to Logan, Utah, tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're pleased to have Daniel James Brown with us. His bestseller, The Boys in the Boat, was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for incoming students and the community. And we have Daniel James Brown for the hour today. So, Daniel James Brown, um, Joe Rance's story is extraordinary. Some of these things you couldn't make up, or if you did, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd be laughed off the page. Um, <laughs> t- tell us a little bit about this. This is, I guess, growing up, leading up to... Uh, the Depression, um, you know, hard scrabble uh, life. Uh, tell us a little bit about Joe Rance and his growing up years. Yeah, so actually, that was actually the the first day I met Joe. This was the first thing he talked about. Um, 
Joe's, Joe's mom had, had died when he was uh, three or four, and his father had, um, had remarried a quite young woman. Um, and, um, and so they, and they sort of, uh, ambled around the West. Uh, they lived for a time in a mining camp in Utah and, um, wound up, uh, eventually, um, buying, uh, what they used to call a stump farm out on the Olympic Peninsula here in Washington State. And, uh, things were very hard for them and, and, uh, and Joe and his stepmother, um, Never uh, really got along very well, um, and a number of times she she threw him out of the house. But there came a day um, in 1929 when uh, Joe was 14, I believe, um, right at the beginning of the depression. They were they were having a particularly hard time. Um, the family making a go of it out and out on the peninsula. And Joe came home from school one day and um, and discovered that the family car was in the front yard and and there was all their possessions, their furniture was tied on the top of the car and the car was packed full of stuff and all Joe's younger half-siblings were in the car. And, uh, and Joe said, well, where are we going? And his father said, oh, well, I'm not sure, but um, uh, this was the step mother uh can't stay here any we can't stay here any longer and and joe said again well where are we going and his father said well actually joe you're not going anywhere you're going to have to stay here Thula doesn't want you to come with us so and they drove away hmm. and they so they left joe the house they were living in was only half constructed um and they left joe uh, alone in this half-built house out in the woods on the Olympic Peninsula and disappeared. And so Joe had to literally forage in the woods for berries and mushrooms and used to poach salmon out of the Dungeness River and started just sort of having to do whatever he had to do to stay alive. And for a number of years, that's the way he lived. Um, just entirely on his own, um, trying to figure out a way to survive. And um, during that time, he fell in love with. He did keep manage. He did manage to keep going to school, and he fell in love with Joyce, who he eventually married. And Joyce was really the only presence in his life that was helpful at that point. Mm. Um, but that's pretty much the state he was in when. Um, he showed up at the University of Washington as a freshman and uh, and wanted to enroll. He he spent a summer, uh, we spent a number of summers actually doing hard labor out on the peninsula, but he had saved up a little bit of money, and then he moved in with his brother, who was living in Seattle at that point, and uh, began to attend the University of Washington. That's an, ex- um, that's an extraordinary goal for someone in his uh, <laughs> position, right? It is, and you know, I mean, Joe. Joe was an amazing guy. Um, he came to the point where he realized that if he was going to make it, he was going to have to make it on his own. And so he, um, so he, he took this big chance, and it was, it was, it was a remarkable step for him to take. It wasn't that common for farm kids uh, out on the peninsula to come to the university at all. And he didn't have the means to get through maybe a, some more than a semester or so at the university when he started. It was really only when uh, he got onto the rowing team that um, if you were on the rowing team, there were no athletic scholarships, at least for rowers in those days. But if you got onto the rowing team, as long as you could stay on the rowing team, the university would give you a part-time job. Um, so Joe desperately had to get on that team and he had to stay on it and uh and so that was a huge part of his motivation was he wanted to stay at the university he wanted to become an engineer and he wanted to marry joyce and to do all that rowing really was the the ticket he he uh, he needed it as a way of staying there i want to read just this uh, this sentence from the book um 
You write that uh, when he was abandoned, he promised himself he'd never depend on anyone else, not even on Joyce for his happiness or his sense of who he who he was. Uh, that I could see would present maybe some problems in the marriage, but also some problems in, in rowing because you, you <laughs> trust and dependence on each other is a central part of it. Exactly, and that was when Joe uh, when Joe did start um, to row. He was he was naturally very athletic. He was tall. He was strong. He, he had spent years out in the peninsula, you know, cutting hay and digging ditches and cutting down trees. Huge, strong, fit young man. Um, but he had a problem as a rower. As talented as he was, um, he was very erratic, and he would often try to row the boat basically all by himself because he believed, based on his experience, that he had to do everything for himself. And if that's exactly right. The one thing that doesn't work in a, in a boat, when you're in a crew, is somebody trying to do it all by himself. You have to... You have to trust everybody else in the boat to be pulling their weight. You have to fit into the the rhythm at which they're rowing. Um, it's all about cooperation and pulling together. And so for the first couple of years that Joe was rowing, as I say, he was very talented and very strong, uh, but it, he really had a hard time fitting in at first, and it wasn't until uh, the coach managed to find the right combination of boys, basically boys who all trusted each other. And by then, Joe had gotten to know uh, most of the guys in the boat he, he wound up in. And, and so that eventually was a breakthrough for him to, to begin to trust other people and, and to learn how to fit in. That's interesting. And the coach had tried everything, right? He tried yelling. He tried love. He demoted him to a lesser team, re-promoting him. I guess it was the right combination of, of, of the men in the boat? Yeah, it really was remarkable. You know, he would. Uh, his name was Al Albrooks and the coach, and he would he would pull Joe out of the boat, and the boat would um, go faster for a day. But then the boat would go slower. He'd put Joe back in the boat. The boat would go faster for a day, and then slow down again. And he was very, very frustrated because he could see Joe's you know talent, but he couldn't really figure out how to what was going on in his head. And he finally had the boat builder George Pocock. Um, talk to Joe. And Pocock had had some similar experiences to Joe. His mother had died when he was very young. And, and Joe was able to, I mean, excuse me, uh, George Pocock was able to connect with Joe and, and begin to talk to him about the importance of, of trusting the other guys. And, and that's really what made a difference. And then when, when uh, the coach finally put Joe in the boat that ultimately went to Berlin, it's actually interesting. The log books that the coach kept are in the archives at the University of Washington, and I looked at those. And each day, the coach entered all the different boats and what speeds they were making and which men were in each boat. And you can see the time differences. The day they put Joe in that last boat, that boat just took off. And the next day, it got a little faster, and the next day, it got faster, and the next day, it got faster. And and within a week or so, it was routinely beating every other boat on the team. And um, and it just all happened that day that, that finally they figured out which crew to put Joe on. Um, it's just very graphically illustrated in these uh, time charts in, in, in the rowing log. If you just joined us, we're talking with Daniel James Brown. His uh, bestseller, The Boys in the Boat, was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for Incoming Students and the Community. Um, so I'd like to pause the Joe Rance's story here and, and talk about rowing. Um, this is, uh, you've said, maybe the most demanding uh, sport. Why is that? It, it, is, it is extraordinarily demanding, and I had no idea when I got into this um, just how physically, well, demanding on several levels, physically, emotionally, and also just on the level of skill. But physically, <laughs> um Particularly at the level we're talking about here, what you know, what became an Olympic crew, um, it is just absolutely brutal in terms of the physical requirements, the energy that um, a rower expends rowing a 2,000 meter race. A coach once calculated is equivalent to the energy a basketball player plays, an NBA basketball player plays. 
or extends uh, in two NBA basketball games. But he does it all in about six minutes. Um, there's there's a level of fitness that is just, I think, unparalleled in, probably in any other sport, partly because rowing, rowing involves uh, every muscle in the body, from the smallest muscles in your fingertips to the biggest muscles in your back and legs. Um, your entire body has to be fit and, and toned and developed. And then there's an enormous aerobic uh, demand the, when you start rowing. Within the first uh, minute or so, your body's going to become depleted of oxygen, and you, you therefore have to start rowing with pain and through the pain because your body is going to hurt from that point forward. And so it just takes a, it's, it's an enormously demanding physically. You have to, as I say, be willing to, to put up with the, the physical pain. You have to have the aerobic capacity literally to survive it. Um, so it, I learned a lot about the, uh, physiology of the sport and, and also in meeting um, a lot of rowers, as I was doing the research, I was just absolutely staggered by um, by the demands of the sport. I want to uh, read something uh, George Pocock uh, wrote. In fact, you you uh, begin each chapter with a quotation. George Pocock, the uh, the craftsman, the boat builder, and and something of a philosopher, right? Of of rowing. Yeah. Um, here's what he says: When you get the rhythm in an eight, it's pure pleasure to be in it. It's not hard work when the rhythm comes. That swing, as they call it. I've heard men shriek out with delight when that swing came in an eight. It's a thing they'll never forget as long as they live. Uh, tell me a bit about that. And that's true. You know, in the in the several years since the books come out, I've met thousands of rowers, and and um, they talk about this thing called swing when everything in the boat is going right when. All eight blades are entering the water precisely at the same moment, and, and every muscle in the body is attuned with every other muscle, I mean, in the boat. Um, and it becomes almost effortless at that point, but it's very rare. Even the best crews only find their swing occasionally. But when they find it, I've seen rowers many times grow misty-eyed talking about particular rows that they had or particular races they were in when their whole crew found the swing and everything was going perfectly and the boat just seemed almost to levitate up off of the water. And not in, not in spite of the pain, but in, beyond the pain, there was this pleasure uh, in what they were doing that they never forget for the rest of their lives when it comes together that way. And as I say, there are, there are rowers who row their whole lives and never, never manage to get on a crew that really finds its swing. It is, it's a rare thing, but it's the thing that all rowers uh, aspire to. What, what is it, uh, I guess, the right combination of men or women in the boat? What, uh, what produces that? Yeah. You know, I think that's, you, you put your finger exactly on it. There's a kind of alchemy in putting uh, together a great crew. And um, I, I remember asking the rowing coach here, the modern-day rowing coach at the University of Washington, a few years ago what made for a great crew. And he said, well, I would never take the biggest man or woman in the boat and just clone that biggest, strongest rower and have eight identical rowers because... Um, a, good, a good crew is always a mixture of both physical types and psychological types. You need light people up in the front of the boat because uh, basically the way they row, they need to be light but technically proficient because any deviation in how the bow of the boat means the whole boat's going to go that direction, obviously. They need, you need a big, strong, powerful men in, or women in the middle of the boat. You need people in the last two seats who have a perfect sense of rhythm because everybody else in the boat is watching their oars and replicating their rhythm. And then you also need different personality types. You need somebody, sort of a spark plug, who will um, fire a crew up when they're down and, and motivate everybody. Sometimes you need somebody that's just the opposite, that will calm everybody down. 
And, and so the personalities all have to mesh and the physical types have to all mesh. And that's really what, what Coach Albrookson at Washington was so good at in the 1930s was this, as I say, this sort of magic, this alchemy of mixing and matching, uh, rowers until he found just the right combination. And that's, that's when you get a crew that has the potential to, um, to find their swing and, and to do the kinds of things that these guys wound up doing in a, in a series of races over uh, several years. We'll take a break next and I'll have you come back and tell that uh, the extraordinary story. I want one more uh, George Pocock uh, quote here. This is the quote ahead of the uh, epilogue. It says, Harmony, balance, and rhythm. They're the three things that can stay that stay with you your whole life. Without them, civilization is out of whack. And that's why an oarsman, when he goes out in life, he can fight it. He can handle life. That's what he gets from rowing. That's uh, George Pocock stating, um, you know, something that uh, I think has become obvious. There's, there are obvious metaphors from rowing <laughs> to life, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, it's amazing um, the impact that Pocock and his sort of philosophy, and that's one of, of the best quotes, I think, um, had on these young men and also actually on generations of rowers at Washington and um and you know since all his quotes have appeared in this book i i hear back from readers all the time how much in addition to the rest of the story how much they get out of these little snippets of of pocock's philosophy that are scattered through the book let's take uh, another break when we come back we'll hear that have danger james brown tell us a, a bit of this extraordinary story these are um, as uh, Daniel James Brown writes, these are the sons of loggers, uh, shipyard workers, and farmers. And they go up against the elite teams of the East Coast and Great Britain, and then finally at the Olympics, 1936. We'll hear uh, at least part of that story uh, coming up. Daniel James Brown's book, The Boys in the Boat. More following this break. Next time on Living on Earth. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. That sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. New England Stone Wall. Good fences make good neighbors. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Coming up at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Utah Women 2020 is a UPR original series exploring the unique challenges and opportunities facing women in Utah today. We're exploring gender parity, the Me Too movement, elections, and much more. The series is airing on Utah Public Radio during NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered and UPR's Access Utah, also on the UPR app and wherever you get your podcasts. That's Utah Women 2020, right here on Utah Public Radio. What if being angry made you feel better? I slept well. I wanted naturally to exercise more. I ate well. Great sex life with my husband. Like I, Nobody was telling me that a part of how I rationally feel every day was invalid. So is anger a useful emotion? Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have Daniel James Brown with us. His bestseller, uh, The Boys in the Boat, is a story about beating the odds and finding hope in the most desperate of times. Uh, Working class boys from the American West uh, won the gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin in rowing. Um, Daniel James Brown, before we get into the extraordinary events leading up to 1936 and the, the Olympics of 36, it this is an extraordinary love story, isn't it? Uh, he, Joe Rance, was compensated, <laughs> at least in part, for the for the difficulties being abandoned, um, and uh, Joyce, who became his wife, uh, uh, made a vow right to herself that uh, Joe would never be abandoned again. He'd have a happy home life. Exactly. Um, you know, in those years when Joe was abandoned, Joe had had, mer- had uh, met Joyce um, literally on the school bus in uh, middle school, and um, and they were drawn together very quickly. Joe loved music, and and she did too, and um, so they they became an item very early on. Um, but during those 
very hard years for Joe when he was living alone in this half-built house out in the woods. Um, she was the one, you know, constant in his life, and she saw the enormous pain that he experienced, you know, mental, psychological pain, and 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 seeing this and falling in love with him, going close to him, she she decided early on that um, that she was going to make sure, particularly after he proposed to her, that um, that he was never going to be alone again, never be abandoned like that again. And um, Joyce was Joyce was uh, she had passed away by the time I began this project, so I never got to meet her personally. But through Judy, I got to know her pretty well, and through some letters she had written and so forth. She was actually also a pretty remarkable uh, young woman. She was a farm girl um, growing up out in Squim, Washington, and um, she was very bright and precociously bright, and she wound up going to, uh, moving into Seattle and going to the University of Washington uh, when Joe did. Uh, partly to be by his side, but also because she was just intellectually interested in all kinds of things, philosophy and photography and just this wide smorgasbord of interest she had. And um, and she wound up actually graduating from the University of Washington, Phi Beta Kappa, an outstanding student. And... Um, and, you know, I, I have to believe that that made a huge difference in, in Joe's life in the long run was that there was this one person that he could count on and, and, and vice versa. And eventually, uh, Joe didn't want to get, they didn't want to get married till Joe had graduated. Uh, he graduated in 1937. They got married the day of their graduation, um, and went on and, and raised a very happy, uh, uh family. So t- tell us about the run-up to the Olympics. Uh, Coach Ulbrichsen has assembled uh, what he thinks is a very promising team, right? Um, um, but they they have to overcome uh, the elite teams of the of the East. Yeah. So um, they were there was little respect given to um, the rowing programs out here on the West Coast by the rowing programs on the East Coast. The, the kids that rowed on the East Coast schools, particularly the Ivy League schools, they were these young men were the sons of, oh, you know, U.S. senators or titans of industry. Um, they were definitely upper crust kids by any account. The kids that rode for Washington and to some extent that rode for Cal Berkeley down in California, they were very different kinds of kids. They were mostly working class kids, particularly these guys from Washington State. They had grown up in mill towns and on farms and, um, they, when they showed up the University of Washington, they, they had no idea how to row. Most of the kids on the East Coast had learned to row in prep school, in fact. So, um, so right from the start, this crew began, um, first they had to beat their very good rivals at Cal, um, but then they went on and they started over the course of three years to win more and more races against the East Coast schools. And uh, in the, the year leading up to the Summer Olympics in, in Berlin, um, they just blew away the competition in the East. First at a regatta in Poughkeepsie, New York, which they won in a staggering fashion. And then in the Olympic trials, which were held at Princeton, uh, they just again blew away the whole field. So they, they triumphed over the rowing elite from the East Coast. Then they had to go up against when they got to, uh, to Germany they, from the Olympic trials or the um, first heats in the Olympics in Germany, they had to row against a team from Great Britain. And these were kids, again, who had grown up rowing. These were kids from Oxford and Cambridge, um, which is pretty much where the modern sport was invented. And they had a very tough uh, preliminary race against uh, the English kids, but they did win that race. And, and went on to qualify. And then, of course, in the gold medal race, they had to go up against this, um, was basically, uh, uh, all, uh, hand-picked Nazi crew, uh, supported by the German state. And in the end, um, they triumphed over them as well. 
So in in a lot of ways, it's sort of a classic American underdog story. These guys were always um, fighting their way up to a higher level of you know power and prestige and and overcoming it. And that's really that's really what really what is so remarkable about them as a team was where they started and then where they wound up. They did see themselves as underdogs, right? And they they made this great achievement. And in fact, you write that um, that Joe Rance always, I guess, secretly felt that he was the weak link. And then he found out years later the the other boys in the boat all, <laughs> all individually thought they were the weak link. Yeah, it was cute. I mean, I was reading these diaries and letters these guys had left behind, and it had at various points, almost all of them. You know, the thing that all of them kept saying was. Oh, I really, I really hope we can win this, you know, you know, this race in Germany. It would be so great to come back to Seattle with gold medals. But I just hope I don't let the other guys down. And when you read these letters and diaries, you realize almost all of them thought he was the guy that was going to let everybody else down. Um, they, they really, really um, didn't want to disappoint one another. And, and yes, I think each of them secretly worried about being the one that that wouldn't um, wouldn't do the right thing you have said that this is uh, one of the great growing teams of all time why is that it is um, yeah, I think it's a combination of um, the story we're just talking about who they were and where they came from and where they wound up I'm going all the way to the gold medal podium in in Berlin um, but they were also great in another particular sense in the rowing world, which is that they were great um, at very under lots of different circumstances, and particularly in terms of distance. In those days, the big race in the United States was the Poughkeepsie Regatta in Poughkeepsie, New York. It was a four-mile race on the Hudson River. Four miles is a long way to row. Um, and they won that race in absolutely smashing fashion. And just a couple of weeks later, they had to go to Princeton and win just a 2,000-meter race, which is an entirely different sort of thing. It's basically a sprint from the moment you, you, you pull the, make the first pull till you cross the finish line. It's an all-out sprint. And, and so rowing a 2,000-meter race is a completely different sort of thing than rowing a four-mile race. They were a crew that could do both and consistently did both um, and, and, and would win at varying lengths. And, and I think that is something we don't actually see these days because these days uh, rowing competitions are almost always just uh, 2,000 meters, and you, so you don't have these long four-mile grueling endurance things that you used to have. And I think that's part of what makes them you know, pretty legendary in the rowing world. One of the things you highlight uh, in the book, uh, and, you, and you've said that this was kind of a surprise to you, we know that the Nazis used the 1936 Olympics as a propaganda tool, but you have said that uh, you were surprised how much. That, that it, was, it was really an all-out and, and uh, I guess, quite successful uh, venture in terms of propaganda. Yeah, actually, um, the reality is is that most Americans who went to Berlin that summer and uh, spent time in Berlin and going to the games, came back very favorably impressed by what they called the new Germany at the time. This is Germany under the Nazi party. Um, you know, they were, the city was clean, it was efficient, um, everybody was smiling. And all this was covering up a very dark reality. Uh, Dachau was being constructed that summer just uh, some miles north of Berlin, and, um, or I actually, I don't know what direction, outside of Berlin. Um, there was a very different Germany that was unfolding while this showcase was being put on in Berlin. And um, they had a very, very elaborate propaganda effort that went into portraying Germany as having nothing but peaceful intentions, when in fact they were um, building an enormous war machine. And I had always known that. I think a lot of Americans realized that that game was used, you know, for propaganda purposes. But going into the book and before I did all the research, I, you know, I, I we all we all know about the later history of Germany, the war and the Holocaust. 
Um, I didn't know much about Germany during the mid-1930s, and I didn't realize how systematically and how cynically they had manipulated world opinion and, and concealed what they were really doing. So for me, doing the research was, was really eye-opening and, um, and moving. And um, I actually got became so interested in it that I wrote about 80 pages more than is in, than is in the book. Um, my editor wisely took a great deal of that out because it was getting in the way of the storytelling. Yeah. But it was very a very, very interesting time in history and the propaganda, you know, aspects of of the story are a very important part of what was going on. And then of course this is this has this has effects. If you have a successful propaganda you can you can blind people to what's actually happening. I, I was just reading uh, the other day again about uh, Charles Lindbergh, who had lived in Germany for a while. He came back and was became involved in the America First movement. And uh, uh, yep. his point was, hey, what I've seen in Germany is uh, it's, they're 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 doing good things. Yep, that and that was not an uncommon uh, view in the mid 1930s. Um, there were there was that America First movement. Um, there was an active Nazi party in the United States. There was. Uh, there was a lot going on, um, and you know, to be fair, nobody I suppose really knew yet. Or I shouldn't say nobody, because there were people in the Jewish community in New York who who did know what was starting to happen, and their voices were pretty much drowned out. We just have about three minutes left. I want to um, talk about after after effects, the you know, life after this extraordinary these extraordinary events. Um, it's, it's, by and large, the, the boys in the boat uh, went on to be successful, uh, quite successful. Many of them got into engineering. Uh, that's a, a common theme there. Um, and they were, to, to a man, very humble about their accomplishments. Yeah, you, you know, when I talk about the different virtues that these guys had and what I think made them successful as as a crew and as men, one of the virtues I talk about is their humility. Um, I mean, these guys were big, strong, healthy guys. With, you know, it, you have to have a pretty healthy ego to, to think you're going to win an Olympic gold medal in rowing, of all things. But they also had a measure of humility. Um, the sport is so painful and it's so difficult, and they went through so many challenges that over that time when they were coming together, they learned that um, they learned they needed one another. And I think that that humility and the humility with which they approached one another and approached the sport and approached what they were trying to do, really, for one thing, it was sort of the gateway through which they were able to build trust among themselves and, and become as bonded together as they were. Um, and I think it's one of the keys to to their success and one of the things that that uh, in some ways typifies their generation also when I think about my father and my uncles and my aunts from that generation they tended to have a kind of civility and a kind of humility that, <laughs> that I think we don't see as much uh, these days and so I think in in that way these guys were great representatives of, of their generation you say they they did get together often. Uh, many of them ended up or, or stayed in the Seattle area, and they would get together what every ten year reunions. Uh, on which occasions they'd go out in the boat um, and be photographed and, and and such. What what we talked about this a little bit earlier in the hour, but I, it's it's I think a very important part of the story. Uh, what formed that special bond? Yeah, you know, I think it was um, I think it was just forged back there in those those three years, and particularly the year of 1936, when they when they became so close, when they did this very audacious thing. You know, when these kids, these farm kids, basically from Washington, wound up in New York City getting on an ocean liner going to Berlin, and then, you know, being in Europe, this was like, most of them had never been outside the Seattle area or outside of Washington State. This was eye-popping stuff for them. So it was a hugely big deal in their lives and they never forgot it i mean and they never forgot the um the power of of the friendship that they had built um, for one another bob mock who was the coxswain his daughter told me that 
I mean, Bob had a great wife. He became a lawyer, very smart guy. But I remember his daughter telling me that her dad spent the rest of his life trying to find something as meaningful and impactful uh, to him as that Olympic experience had been. And although he did many interesting and fine things, he never found anything that was as um, important to him as what he'd been through with those guys Mm. back in 1936. Just a minute left. Uh, What's your biggest takeaway, personally? You know, I think it is that um, by getting to know these guys through their families and through talking to those who were still alive and becoming so immersed in the story, I've just, um, I've tried to deliberately, and also subconsciously, I think, uh, embody some of the virtues that I thought, I think that they did. You know, I look at their perseverance, I look at the earnestness with which they approached their task. I look at the humility with which they approached their task. Um, and I try to incorporate some of those virtues into my, into my own life. They, there's a lot of life lessons in, in the story. And I, I know I hear from readers all the time about how those life lessons have come to play in their lives. And I, I would say the same things happen to me. Um, I'm a reader of this story too. And I, um, I think it has changed a lot of things about me, and I, I hope for the better. Well, the extraordinary story. Um, the Boys in the Boat was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for incoming students in the community. Daniel James Brown, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next On Being, Pico Iyer on the art of stillness. I've got to confess to you, I think of intellectual, my prejudice is almost to think of it as a bad word or a dirty word. And I think that everything important in my life has not come through my mind, but through my spirit or my being or my heart. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. That's Sunday evening at 5 on Utah Public Radio. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Humane Society Forever Home Holiday Brunch, Sunday, December 9th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Logan Golf and Country Club. Brunch, auction, and entertainment. Ticket details available at cashhumane.org. And the Wasserman Festival, presenting cellist Amit Pellet and pianist Noreen Palera in a program titled To Brahms With Love, Saturday, December 1st at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. More information at usu.edu slash Wasserman. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.